Cruise ships may be empty, but business is brisk at Port Miami. What we're seeing on the cargo side is an incredible uptick of volume. International trade has fed record months of shipping containers coming into Port Miami, leading some to complain about delays. I'm Tom Hudson. Coming up on the Sunshine Economy, Port Miami, trading through the pandemic. Also on today's program, how one of the small business owners we've been following for months wound up sharing her story with President Biden. I'm not political, but I felt that it was a moment in time in the history of this country that I wanted to have a voice. And so they were giving me the opportunity, so I took it. It's all ahead on the Sunshine Economy. Welcome to the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for listening and supporting public media. Millions of people have been missing from Port Miami during the pandemic, but parts of the port are busier than ever. Two cargo ships lined the Southside Wharf on Thursday morning last week. A third was guided into port after slipping through government cut, the economic and maritime passageway into and out of South Florida. These ships were laden with steel boxes, containers, holding food, furniture, and any assortment of stuff making its way through this man-made island that had grown into the busiest cruise ship port in the world before the pandemic. That side of the port, the north side, remains mostly quiet these days. The cruise business shutdown is in its 10th month and will last at least until the spring. But this side of the port? It's busy, experiencing record levels of trade volume. Steel shipping containers are stacked in terminal yards on the port, creating neighborhoods of cargo. Three, four, five, or more containers high and trucks line up by the dozens to pick up the boxes and drive them through the port tunnel, dropping 120 feet below sea level under Biscayne Bay, before connecting with Interstate 395 and then heading to warehouses, customers, and storage yards across South Florida. These short trips are called drayage, and they represent one of the pinch points in the global trade chain. Local trucking companies WLRN spoke to complain of delays on the port picking up containers. They say sometimes drivers are waiting more than three hours to have a container lowered onto their truck. The business thrives on speed, and waiting in line means the drivers can make fewer trips in a day. That means less money, and there is a driver shortage. In December, owners of the stuff inside the cargo containers had to reserve truck drivers at least a week in advance, and the hours of at least one of the three companies operating a cargo terminal limited the time trucks could pick up the shipments. This is according to the Journal of Commerce, a trade industry news publication. One custom office furniture maker in South Florida told WLRN of waiting almost three weeks to finally take delivery of a container, of four-foot by eight-foot sheets of laminate imported from China. It cost him almost $4,000 in storage fees before the cargo finally made it off the port. 
There are three independent companies operating cargo terminals at the port. The largest operator, responsible for half of the volume, Seaboard, did not register any congestion problems during the last three months of the year when trade was at record levels, according to a port official. A second terminal operator, Port of Miami Terminal Operating Company, was open over the weekend for truckers. Bigger ships through the expanded Panama Canal can call upon Miami now after the bottom of the bay was deepened. And since 2015, rail has connected the port to the rest of the country again, helping bring in even more cargo. A lot of the boxes that you see double stacked on the rail right now are headed toward the Carolinas. This is Eric Olfson. He's the director of global trade at Port Miami. We were in a van touring the port last week. And what it is is uh, comes down in, in containers from Charlotte, North Carolina to Port Miami, offloaded, put on ships to Honduras, Nicaragua, um, and Guatemala. Then there's factories there, uh, Gildan, Fruit of the Loom, Haynes Brand, where they manufacture T-shirts, uh, sweatshirts, socks, um, and then it comes back into the United States. And it's, it's a win-win for us. It's U.S. cotton being utilized for U.S. products manufactured in Central America. And then when it comes back, it's finished products. It once again gets loaded onto the rail and sent back to North Carolina for distribution nationally. I like to say, maybe you've never been to, to people, they may, maybe have never been to Miami, but their socks, their t-shirts, their underwear have. <laughs> As the pandemic has pressed on, international trade has rebounded and the port has seen record traffic. But instead of cruise passengers, it's TEUs, that's shorthand for 20-foot equivalent, the standard measuring stick for shipping containers, all crowding the dock. October was the busiest month ever for cargo at the port. 107,000 TEUs were moved in or out. That was 1.5% higher than the previous record month, October of 2019. It makes sense that October is a big month for ocean cargo. It's right before the holidays. Giant vessels from China arrive with manufactured goods in time for Christmas shoppers in the United States, and smaller ships head out to the Caribbean and Latin America with hotels and resorts stocking up for winter tourists. But of course, that wasn't the case this October. Tourism is just a hint of what it would normally be. Instead, it's pent-up demand from the slow spring and summer and other factors feeding cargo traffic. November cargo traffic at Port Miami also was busy, up 2.5% from a year earlier when there was no pandemic. And December volume was flat compared to a year ago. Business is brisk at the port. There was a thin layer of wispy cloud cover over the mainland and along Miami Beach when we visited Port Miami late last week. Just enough of it to break the intensity of the winter sun, but not enough to knock down the shadows of the giant gantry cranes stretched out ten stories high. It was late morning. Two ships were along the wharf with crews busy loading and unloading containers. The Maersk Senang was the largest of the two. It was on its way to Portugal. More than 1,700 TEUs were being loaded and unloaded from the ship during its stop in Miami. A little further along the wharf was the Regula. It needed to have a more modest 371 TEUs moved before it set sail for Nassau. 
It was positioned under two cranes. One was reaching onto the dock of the ship to grab a shipping container, hoisting it vertical, then bringing it on shore, hovering over a terminal truck, setting it on its bed before swinging back onto the ship, and the truck takes the steel box into a container yard where it will wait to be picked up. A second crane was executing the same choreography, but in the opposite order. A terminal truck drives up, waits for the crane's spreader to settle on top of the box, grabbing it, lifting it up, and out onto the deck of the ship, setting it there to set sail. It's an orchestration of power, moving tons of trading products on and off the port fueling jobs here and the larger trade, logistics, and transportation industries that rely on growing demand. The Astrid Schulte was coming into port at this time, representing almost another 1,500 TEUs that would have to be moved on this day before that ship departed Miami en route to Veracruz, Mexico. This was just the latest in a string of three busy days at the port last week. A day earlier, a ship that started its journey in China and then South Korea called upon Port Miami with more than 2,000 containers to move. And on Tuesday, two ships, one from Italy and Spain, the other from South China, Singapore, and the Mideast, docked with almost 5,500 containers combined. Still to come, the boss at Port Miami on the cargo business and congestion. If you have... Some congestion is because you have a lot of volume, which is good. The goal, the key, is to get that in and out of the port efficiently. We're back on the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. The podcast is available for you through your podcast app. Just go ahead and search Sunshine Economy and hit subscribe. Thanks. Today we're talking about Port Miami. It's a magnet for economic activity in normal times at the heart of South Florida's tourism industry with cruise ships and trade industry with cargo containers. But the cruise ships are not sailing with passengers. Last week, Carnival Cruises announced it would not sail from U.S. ports like Miami until April 30th at the earliest. Royal Caribbean and Norwegian also have pushed back the earliest they may set sail again until at least late spring. And other cruise operators sailing out of Port Miami have delayed returning to the seas as well. This will make it more than a year that passenger cruises in American waters have not carried passengers. But construction of new passenger terminals continues at Port Miami in a sign of confidence that the business and passengers will return after the pandemic. Meantime, cargo traffic has set records in recent months driven by imports. In the past three months, furniture has become the top item shipped to the port, most of it coming from China and Vietnam. T-shirts, socks, underwear, and other clothing coming in from Central America also is a big commodity, and the port continues seeing more refrigerated containers with food coming in from overseas. According to data from World City, exports fell almost 20% in November compared to a year ago, while imports jumped 13%, and the value of the imports was up, so total trade at the port was up as well. 
We spoke with Port Miami Director Juan Corilla in his office last week. We had our masks on, so our voices are a little muffled. Just by looking at the, the ships that are coming alongside every day, right, in the, during the first 21 days of uh, January, we're anticipating a very busy January. Uh, I think if, if you go out today, you'll see several ships working uh, alongside the docks, uh, ships that are coming from the Caribbean, from Europe, uh, and uh, as well as uh, the Asia-Pacific region. The shift in business for cargo at Port Miami has been substantial. It's been exports that have fallen considerably. Imports have grown tremendously to help make up for that drop, hasn't it? You know, we, we're seeing some uh, some very nice numbers on the on the imports. And uh, what's been happening is that throughout the pandemic, you know, like people stayed home and people now had disposable income. So instead of going on a vacation, uh, they said, hey, let's go ahead and buy a new TV. Let's do some improvements in the house. Most people were staying home and are still staying home, working from home. Uh, so we've seen a lot of imports come in for all kind of consumer goods, electronics. Uh, we've seen exports uh, rise also for building materials. If you look at tile, marble, granite, uh, construction materials that are coming from uh, the, the Far East mostly, and then and from Europe as well in terms of uh, the granite and the marble and so on, uh, that has created a a large uh, surplus. A lot of our exports are to Latin America, the Caribbean, you know, from South Florida, from Miami. We supply many, many resorts, resorts uh, in the Caribbean. You know, those resorts shut down for quite a bit of time, and uh, we also supply a lot of the products that are consumed by cruise passengers in the Caribbean. Uh, and with cruising being out for these last uh, 10 months, those consumer products have uh, decreased. Um, also, the, the consumption market in Latin America, that is taking a, uh, somewhat of a hit, and uh, our exports to Latin America was a, a large part of our business. How substantial is that flip for the cargo side of the port from being a place that had been export-oriented for so long uh, to now become uh, really a magnet for, for imports? So in terms of how it affects the port directly, it is, uh, you know, financially it is not uh, that, that big uh, uh, an issue, right? We we charge the same for an export box uh, than for an import box. We charge the same rate for an empty box than for a full box uh, based on our tariff structure. How about on the operational side, though, moving those big boxes around uh, from, uh, you know, having them come into the port and then onto the ships and then out, now having them come onto the ships and then onto the port sure, and so, the so, inland. Sure, so that that, that creates a a, uh, a little bit of a push and pull, right, a little bit of a challenge that is being overcome in terms of getting the containers out uh, on particular days. The, the terminal operators, they have uh, free storage for X number of days. Once a container comes off the vessel into the yard, from time to time, when it's the last day, the last free day, right, you might have a rush of trucks coming in to pick up those uh, those imports. And, and that creates, from time to time, uh, uh, a little bit of congestion. Um, but, I'm, but I'm pleased to tell you that our terminal operators uh, are, have responded very nicely 
we saw a couple of weeks ago one of them opening up on a Saturday. Um, and uh, just to clear out some of the uh, some of the, the containers that needed to be pulled out, we see them staying late. We see them working through the lunch hour uh, to address that particular issue. The complaints about uh, delays on the port predate the pandemic, certainly, at least from trucking community and, and some of the other importers. How are those being addressed with the record volumes of imports that the uh, port and the terminal operators are experiencing? Sure. So, so uh, at the end of the day, this is still a people's business, right? I say the cruise industry, the cargo industry, just about everything we do to us is is a people's business. Sure, you can have your your algorithms and your computer software and your programs and your terminal operating systems that will give you peak times and will give you the best time to go pick up a container, et cetera, et cetera. But it it it, it comes down to good management and it comes down to communications. And what we are seeing is now that there is more communication, better communications between the terminal operators and the trucking companies. We have three tr- three operators here at the Port of Miami, Seaboard Marine, uh, South Florida Container Terminal, and the Port of Miami Terminal Operating Company. Um, and the uh, I think the, the the constant communication between those general managers and the trucking companies is what is going to solve the congestion issue. Congestion to an extent. Right, I I equate it to volume. If you have some congestion, it's because you have a lot of volume, which is good. The goal, the key, is to get that in and out of the port efficiently. As port director, is there a congestion problem at Port Miami? I, I think we have a a volume, um, a, a rise in volume, and. Uh, Congestion is how you define it, right? And it's, it's, uh, everything is on the, uh, they say the beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Yeah. Well, how right? do you see this beauty, Director? Do you see it as, I, I, as I, congestion? I, I love volume, right? I, I love volume. I love increases in throughput. Uh, can things be done a little bit quicker out of the, at the terminals? Right, sure, you always have that balance. Can the terminals do, uh, you know, move the containers in and out quicker? I think it depends. That's a, that's a loaded question, and I think it's an issue that is nationwide. It's not a Port Miami issue. It is something, it's something that happens all over the United States and all over the world. As port director, as you oversee those private terminal operators, how do you see the challenges that they are facing in terms of the volumes and the congestion that the trucking firms have voiced uh, in regards to being able to pick up those containers in a timely manner, uh, get them out to Doral or Medley or other warehouse districts and do what's so-called a turn? To me, it's, it's coordination. No, we're, this is not, a, for, for lack of a better uh, expression, no, we're, this is not brain surgery, right? It, it is coordination, it is communication, right? And it's just a constant flow of information going back and forth. Perhaps uh, uh, the, the, the utilization of, of an appointment system, right? That is something that we have been proposing to the terminal operators and to the trucking community uh, for, for quite a bit of time, pre-pandemic, right? We've had our, our ups and downs in terms of cargo, 
and then there's so many people that that are involved in this logistics chain, right? It's not just at the end of the day. It's not just the the terminal operator. It's not just the trucking company. It is the warehouses. It's the warehouse or the distribution centers. This is a a community wide effort, right? If we're going to be dispatching containers at 8 p.m. on a regular basis, those containers and those truckers need to have a place to drop off that container. If not, it somewhat starts defeating the purpose. But as port director, is that you, that's not your responsibility to have a destination for that container. No, I, 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 uh, once the container right leaves, uh, leaves the port, it's, it's no longer the responsibility of the port director. Now, we do have a, a public purpose. We do have, I believe, some sort of a, not influence, but I think uh, we 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 never shy away from offering ideas, offering suggestions that could, at the end of the day, improve the entire logistics chain. One source who is a small office furniture importer uh, with a small manufacturing plant in Fort Pierce has told me that they had to wait over three weeks for a container of material coming in from China. Uh, Wait for the container that sat here on the port of Miami for three weeks is just one instance, costing about $4,000 in storage fees. It's the terminal operators that are moving those containers around. But to hear about those delays as port directors, does that kind of delay, that kind of experience concern you? Of course. Ideally, right, we want every container getting picked up in 30, 45 minutes. We want, we want the truckers to do two turns in, in less than an hour and a half. But I have to tell you, it, most of the time they do. You know, but we, we don't dictate to the terminal operators what hours they have to work. Uh, they, too, want to have a, an, an expedited and efficient uh, operation. I, I can tell you that. Uh, from time to time, when you have surges of, of volume, that, that can happen. What do you think contributes to that delay that the trucking community is complaining about? I've heard from a number of trucking sources say they'd love to be able to have a one- or two-hour wait. They've been telling me about three, four, five, six-hour waits in some cases. Yeah, I, I would say that it is not the norm. I would say it is the, it is the exception. Many times you see something stable, and then you do have from time to time that spike. No, no question about it. And now... What happened to that individual container? Did it have the proper documentation? Did it have the customs release? Did it have all the different, were all the different boxes checked, right, that you need to have checked in order for the box to leave the port? So sometimes, I'm not saying always, sometimes that is also uh, an issue. You mentioned some of the documentation involved with containers. What else can contribute to that congestion of getting uh import container that's come in to Port Miami on a truck and out into the economy. What else can contribute to... To a delay, to, to not being able to move that container. I think, I, again, it's it the hour. peak times, right? It's the peak times where, uh, I tell you, where, you know, you have, you can go out today and, and roll, roll the dice, right? You're going to go out and uh, is there going to be, is there a line today? Right? Is there five trucks waiting to get in? Is it 20? Is it 50? Or is it none, right? But when is the day? When is the last day of free storage? Boom! That is when the uh, containers, uh, you know, mostly get picked up. Now maybe there is a way to to structure your 
your your last day of free storage on a rotating basis or kind of like a rolling uh, system uh, that maybe the container uh, operators can take a look at, right? Well, now, what I can tell you uh, at the Port of Miami, right, the, the, the backup, right, is not caused by the Port of Miami administration, right? From time to time when there are backups, that is at the private terminals, right? Like Miami International runs, the county runs Miami International, right? You can go and park in Miami International. You can get dropped off. You name it, Uber, Lyft, taxi, without any backup, just like here. But then if you go to a particular airline counter, you know, exactly two hours before the flight, you might have a line. If you get there three hours before the flight, you might not have a line. As the administrator of the port, what's the role of the county in addressing some of those challenges, not only that local industry is having, but also that competitive nature that the global logistics and trade industry are looking at in terms of efficiency to move product around? No, our, our role is to, to, to press and in, uh, do anything within our legal authority with these private sector tenants uh, to expedite and improve the flow of uh, containers in and out of their yards. That's Port Miami Director Juan Carrilla. We spoke with our masks on in his office last week. Still to come, the conversation continues. We talk about the part of the business at the port, the business that has disappeared because of the pandemic, cruising. We're hoping right, that the industry does come back this summer and uh, come back uh, gradually and eventually come back very strong. This is the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for listening and supporting public radio. The year before the pandemic closed the cruise ship industry, about half of the operating revenues at Port Miami came from dockage fees charged to cruise ship operators. That revenue has plunged with no one cruising except for crews to maintain the vessels and visiting the port occasionally for supplies and COVID testing of the skeleton crew on board. Miami-Dade County has not charged the ships to dock since last spring. The latest waiver is due to expire at the end of the month. It's just one of the ripple effects of the pandemic on an important part of the port's business, cruise ships. This is where we pick up our interview with Port Miami Director Juan Corilla. We spoke with our masks on, so our voices are a little muffled. The county has waived some of the fees we know from the uh, cruise operators because of the CDC uh, moratorium on cruises. Should the waivers that have been extended through the end of January be extended again? Well, that's a decision that uh, the mayor uh, of Miami-Dade County will will make at the right time. Is it something you would advocate for or have advocated for? Of course. You know, you see today four or five ships. Guess what? Those four or five ships are consuming products from Miami-Dade County. That crew still needs to be fed, the supplies, the maintenance of the ships need to take place. Those are all Miami-Dade County small businesses that are providing services. Those ships came to the port, they came alongside. So stevedores were hired to do the line handling. Uh, the harbor pilots were hired to bring the, the ship in. But you support continuing those 
waivers. I, I will make a recommendation to, to the mayor very soon. The worst-case scenario that was imagined by the county regarding the closing of cruising, the CDC-mandated closing of cruising, uh, for more than two years, that was the um, worst case imagined by county administrators, would cost $285 million to the county and the port and lost fees. The county estimates that the port would have to use reserve funds to stay open beginning April of this year. Is that accurate? So we, we will have to use reserve funds. I believe the number is more by if we have no cruising by July of, of this year. So July, you'd have to dip into reserves. Sure, sure. Now, what, what I can tell you is that because of the incredible throughput that the cruise lines have had at the Port of Miami throughout their history, particularly the last four years, where you've seen a constant, where you saw up to the pandemic, a constant escalation of, of passengers, the port has been able to uh, accumulate a reserve in excess of $100 million. Right. $114 million, I think, was the report late last year. You, 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 do, uh, you do great research, right? So we, 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 we don't like to brag, but yes, well, say in excess of 100 But is the port but yeah, prepared? It's been, up, it's been up to 125 We yeah. used a few million to close the books on September 30, 2020. Uh, and now we do have, you know, that that's our balance, right? About 114, $115 million. That same report said if cruises were somehow closed or if those revenues didn't return by September of 22, that the port would be unable to make its debt obligations. Is that a red line for you in the port? September of 2022 is, is, a, is a red line in terms of uh, making a decision then to... You know, if we see that nothing's going to happen beyond then, then there are other opportunities, other savings that that we could tap into in order to continue going. Again, cargo is doing very, very well. We can do many more things with cargo. We have areas that are dedicated to cruise. We have a lot of land that is dedicated to cruise, parking garages, parking lots, surface lots. That Let's face it, if there were no cruise, we could be utilizing those areas uh, as contain uh, also for terminal operations, container uh, handling uh, areas that will start generating revenue the same way these three terminals generate a substantial amount of revenue for the port. As you kind of plan that out in a worst case scenario, what kind of timeline would you imagine to have to make those considerations of the use of port real estate geared now to cruise, but reorient that to cargo if the cruise industry is still docked? Well, first, we need to see what happens with the cruise industry. Uh, we're, you know, the, the the different protocols that the CDC has uh, created and that the cruise lines uh, will will be able to meet, right? And uh, you know, there's some negotiations, but going on as to what what will work uh, uh, well. Uh, then we have the vaccine. the 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 vaccine, I think, is a is a game changer for the industry. It's a tremendous, tremendous. Uh, I think a silver bullet, right? And uh, so we we're hoping, right, that the industry does come back this summer and uh, come back uh, gradually and eventually come back very strong. We we have continued. We have continued our capital projects uh, as it relates to future cruise terminals, future growth. Actually, I'm running. I was running ten minutes late. Was finishing a call with a 
with MSC, who is an incredible, incredible client on the cargo side and also on the cruise side. Uh, and, uh, you know, they've continued all of their new build uh, programs like, like all the other ones have, Virgin Cruises has. And uh, we're going we're gonna to go through this, and we're going we're gonna to continue. Uh, cruise will be back. Cargo hopefully will continue to grow, and Cruise will uh, would love to have this uh, this interview with you. Uh, let's do it every six months, right? And uh, I think we'll have good news uh, come uh, July of uh, 2021, and we'll have some great news come uh, again January of 2022. Director, I'm going to take you up on that invitation. Let's do it. I appreciate it, sir. You bet. Thank you very much for your time. No, my pleasure. Speaking with Port Miami Director Juan Carrillo last week with our masks on. Still to come, we catch up with three women and their businesses we've been hearing from as they navigate the pandemic economy, including the Miami empanada maker invited to speak with the president-elect days before Inauguration Day. I'm not political, but I felt that it was a moment in time in the history of this country that I wanted to have a voice. And so if they were giving me the opportunity, so I took it. Welcome back to the Sunshine Economy here on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Don't forget about our podcast. You can search Sunshine Economy on your favorite podcast app, and then be sure to hit subscribe so you don't miss a week. Thanks. For months, we've been checking in most weeks with Pilar Guzman Zavala. She co-owns and runs Half Moon Empanadas. She's one of thousands of small businesses here in South Florida operating in the hospitality industry, an industry hit hard by the pandemic. Her business certainly was not spared. Over the course of a week, Half Moon Empanadas was forced to close most of its 13 outlets back in March. It was left with its ventanita in the Upper East Side of Miami and shifted to make meals for senior citizens under a county contract. The company survived. Some of the counters have reopened, including the University of Miami and at Miami International Airport. She's also returned to her plans to grow the company. She expects to open two new locations next month in the region, and more airports are interested in having her empanadas in their terminals. The year began, though, with the glare of national politics finding Zavala. She was invited to speak with then-president-elect Joe Biden less than a week before his inauguration. It's been, uh, yeah... Two weeks of a lot of stress because of I knew I was going to be talking to the president-elect. I was just like thinking about the day, like getting ready. And so I was very tense about it. But I did not see coming what happened after. <laughs> like the, the explosion on the media and the and Twitter and social media and the the publicity. It's been crazy. I, I never expected that at all. I wasn't seeing that. So everybody's like, so how did you get to talk to him? And so the story begins because I've been very involved with the community, trying to build a better ecosystem for entrepreneurs in Miami. I meet a friend of mine, now a friend of mine, who worked for Obama. We just became friends. And then when the campaign came, he called me and said, you know, I would love for you to join National Council for Entrepreneurs and Small Businesses for Biden. I have never done anything political. I'm not political. 
but I felt that it was it was a moment in time in the history of this country that I wanted to have a voice. And so if they were giving me the opportunity, so I took it. They were, I guess, looking for a small business to be part of the launch of this national rescue plan, the president launch. Two weeks before uh, me talking to the president, I get a text. And I just like that, it's like, we're calling you from the uh, transitional team, you know, President-elect Biden, and we would like to talk to you. And, and I thought it was a joke. <laughs> so I was like, okay, let me Google the person's name. Uh, and then it's like, we would like to for you to talk to this person. And then, so I Googled the two persons and I'm like, mm, I, I think they're real. <laughs> so I reply back and I say, sure. Pilar, can you hear me? Yes. Hi. How are you? I was sitting in my kitchen with my computer and waiting for the call. And then suddenly I see on the screen, president elect. Oh my gosh. I, 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 I wanted to just run. I'm like, what, what the hell am I doing? Like, you're crazy, Pilar. You're crazy. And then my story and everything in 10 seconds. And then he says, he says to me, hi, Pilar. Pilar, can you hear me? Yes. Hi. How are you? You know, tell me what's going on. Tell me about your business. What's going on? How are you doing? And so I'm like, okay, here I go. So I tell him my story. One day, March 13, all of our stores started to close. I tell him, you know, how we built our company, what happened with COVID, and then how we reinvented ourselves. And we did two things uh, to survive 2020. One, we focused on our sales here in the Ventanita uh, and doing online sales. And we became a restaurant of empanadas making meals for seniors. So we and then he goes on and tells me about the plan. You know, I'm going to be announcing the American Rescue Plan that I have on the first day. You know, he says, I, I'm doing this for small businesses. But then I'm like, when he's up finishing, I'm like, I raise my hand. My husband is like, are you seriously raise your hand to, to say what? <laughs> So I go like, uh, and he's like, sure. So I go, you know, I'm glad that you're looking at, at, at how you can support, especially small businesses, the businesses that are 10 people, the businesses that are small that are not getting the PPP. And so I just told him, please think about the really micro businesses. Because the single biggest driver of employment are mom and pop small businesses. And then he went on. He said, you know, it's really nice meeting you. I almost wanted to cry. He said, I'm very impressed with your tenacity, with your strength, with your leadership, with how much, you know, you, you've done. So I'm like, oh, my gosh. And I'm like, no, you're not crying, Pilar, because, you know, you cannot cry here. Uh, so I hold it. And, I, and, and he just says, I really hope to meet you in person when I come to Miami. I said, please come visit and have an empanada with us. <laughs> That's it. I'm realistic. You know, I'm a business person. I know that things are really hard to change. And this is systemic. This is not just, you know, the, the administration for, for Trump did this. There's years of years where small businesses, which are happen to be women-owned and Hispanic and African-American businesses, those are the tiny ones. And so it's not a, a Trump versus Biden situation, at least from the point of view of small businesses. It's a systemic situation where we really, as a country, need to look and really seriously think about how we can support this, this kind of groups. We are part of this economy and that we must be taken into account. And the exciting thing that happened this week, too, is that we heard back from three airports uh, that they want to have our product as an add-on in their stores, uh, Atlanta, Dallas and Seattle. 
you know, that's like, whoa, you know, it's, it's um, okay, let's do this. So it's a lot of things happening. That's Pilar Guzman Zavala with Half Moon Empanadas. She's the baker of a trio of women we hear from most weeks about how they and their businesses are getting along in the pandemic economy. Now, Zavala's request to Joe Biden to look at the Paycheck Protection Program and very small businesses, mom and pop businesses is how the president described them, led to a Washington Post fact check of Biden's claim that those small firms employ more people in America than big corporations. Defining a mom-and-pop company isn't clear in terms of the number of employees. The Post ruled Biden's claim unrated, as data show about half of workers in the United States work at companies with more than 500 employees, half at smaller firms. The situation is much different in Miami-Dade County, though. About 8 out of 10 businesses had 9 or fewer employees in 2018. That's the most recent data available from the U.S. Census Bureau. Still to come, we'll catch up with the banker and cleaner of what's on their to-do lists this week in the pandemic economy. I would need to increase the staff by four people. That's very substantial. We've got a really strong uh, pipeline, uh, traditional loan pipeline for January. We're back on the Sunshine Economy here on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks again for listening and supporting public media. You can find us on social media. Look for WLRN on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We first introduced you to Sherry Rudolph two weeks ago. She owns Legally Clean, a janitorial service firm in Lauder Hill. She started it in 2006, offering cleaning services to construction sites, offices, homes, stores, and a lot of her business just disappeared with people not wanting to go into offices during the pandemic and not wanting others inside their homes. But she's added disinfectant cleaning, and she's confident in winning two new pieces of business very soon, making for a strong start to the new year for her. Actually, it's gotten up pretty good. I am working uh, towards two contracts, one with a uh, commercial company and one with a construction company. One that should be starting in about three weeks, and the other one should be starting in about a month. It will mean substantial income. One is a uh, construction project. Uh, I'll be cleaning the trailers while they are uh, building the facility. That's the University of Miami, one of their um, buildings there on site. Uh, they're building a new building. We'll be uh, working not only the pre-construction, but also the construction once it's completed. And the other one is a, uh, we'll be cleaning the common areas for a 55-unit building in Lauder Hill. I feel pretty good. I've developed the relationships to the point that I think that I should be able to be successful in securing both of those projects. I would need to increase the staff by four people. That's very substantial. It will give me a good start in a good footing for 2021, and that will help me to be able to pursue some other opportunities because I'll have the funds to do that. I'll be able to add more money for uh, marketing and branding and promotion, which will bring in additional um, income. I am very confident 
I'm very excited and I uh, just can't wait for them to start. 2020 was really very damaging to not only my company, but the janitorial industry as a whole. But because we were able to pivot to disinfection, that helped quite a bit. Uh, unfortunately, because I was able to identify very quickly that that would be uh, a needed source in the community as well as in private sectors that we will be able to uh, move forward uh, and secure those types of contracts that were they kind of kept us afloat uh, during this time. I have set a goal to reach out to 10 contractors or retailers because we also do uh, retail cleaning as well. As a small employer, we really need to make that kind of investment in time. And it really doesn't take more than 45 minutes. My thing is to really start kicking it into the next level. And we can't kick it into the next level unless we make the necessary steps to achieve our goals. My thing is if I start with contacting 10 projects or 10 contractors a day, which means that's 50 a week, and which means that's uh, 200 a month, that out of the 200, I should be able to get 20 projects. That's Jerry Rudolph of Legally Clean in Lauder Hill. She also told us last week she hired a virtual assistant, someone who's a freelancer who provides administrative support remotely. Rudolph has the assistant answering email and filling out pre-qualification paperwork to compete for janitorial jobs. The bank Ginger Martin leads is busy with the second wave of Paycheck Protection Program loans. This is a program that's part of the federal government's economic stimulus effort. The loans to companies can be forgiven if most of the money is used to pay worker paychecks. The loans are given through banks. During the first wave, American National Bank in Broward County made about 500 of these loans worth a total of $77 million. We've gotten off to a big start with uh, this second draw of PPP loans. We've done 127 loans for $18 million. So that's been keeping us busy. You've got to qualify for that second draw by having a 25% reduction in revenues. So the good thing is we've only had 127 borrowers apply for that second round when we had a population of 500 loans that got the first round. So that tells me that some of the businesses really, you know, did better than maybe than they expected uh, because they didn't have that 25% reduction. Because if, if they had a 25% reduction, they surely would have been applying for this uh, second round. Because the way it works, you get the same amount for the second draw that you did for the first. So we're seeing less activity. We, we really anticipated more than we've seen. Of course, there are definitely plenty of businesses that are, are hurting. I, I'm not going to uh, not acknowledge that I think that there are, especially in specific industries uh, like the restaurant and, and the you know, hospitality hotels. Yet it seems that some of the other businesses have fared better than maybe we would have expected them to. So that's good news. And then uh, the other, I guess, good news is we've got a really strong uh, pipeline, uh, traditional loan pipeline for January. And we, and we actually ended the year, uh, really a record, you know, a record year. Uh, we had about 30% growth in, uh, you know, our total uh, assets and deposits. So that, in fact, $100 million worth of growth. And so what that does, you know, it positions us 
in a good place to start the year. I was on a call with uh, some other bank CEOs. You know, last week I was on a, I was on a panel. A lot of community banks experienced the same thing that we did. You know, they did grow, they did gain new relationships. Um, and what we've got as an industry right now, community banks I'm talking about, we've got excess liquidity. We have room to definitely be uh, lending. You know, on, on the loan side, the requests that we have gotten, their financials have been strong because we're very cautious about not wanting to lessen our underwriting standards and take on additional risk. So we're, you know, I, I'm, being, I'm being cautious because of the uncertainty that I think is still in the economy, but what we've seen has been good. That's American National Bank CEO Ginger Martin in Broward County. She's the banker of the Banker, Baker, and Cleaner trio of women we're checking in with most weeks to hear how they and their businesses are navigating the pandemic economy. You can follow us on social media and also subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast app. Just search Sunshine Economy. Joe Johnson is our technical director. Polly Landis is our booking producer. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for listening. 